Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Thank you, Shuttle, and good morning, church. Have you noticed that springtime has arrived? It is indeed here. Malmo is looking beautiful. Uh, this time of year, I love seeing the yellow for Scythia bushes, especially. But did you also know, I'm sure you, most of you do, that spring officially arrived over a month ago on March 20th. It arrived then? Yes, that's because the Earth was in a particular position in relation to the sun. So astronomically speaking, it was spring on March 20th. Now, if you're a reasonable person, you kept your coat with you, despite the fact that it was officially spring in March. Um, we've had hail, we've had snow flurries, we've had rain, we've had cold temperatures. Yes, we've had two or three days of nice warm temperatures, but that's two or three days in a month. We still need our coats. Now, there are some people in Sweden, maybe you are one of those people, uh, these peculiar people who... It's like when the calendar says April, they're wearing shorts, regardless of what the weather is, or just as long as it's, they can see a ray of sunshine in the distance. They're like, oh yeah, it's a shorts day for me. From my perspective, it takes some guts and some imagination to look outside, to see the trees violently blowing in the wind, check your weather app, oh yeah, it's 12 degrees, and there's a ray of sunshine way over there. Yep, it's a shorts day for me. <laughs> That takes some imagination. I'm pretty sure these are the same people who, given five more degrees uh, outside, are stripping down to their underwear to sunbathe in the middle of town. I don't know. If you don't live in Monoma City, maybe you've missed this phenomenon, but it's, it's a thing. Um, you can't miss it, especially in the summertime. But look, I, I'm not one of these anticipatory short-wearing people. I really don't like to be cold, so I'm definitely keeping my coat around until I'm sure that the new season is here. That said, I'm going to argue this morning that as disciples of Jesus, we should all actually be living a little bit more like these early short-wearing people. Now, this is a bit of a silly picture, yes, but it illustrates something important about the kingdom of God, which is the biblical idea that it is here now and not yet fully. It's now, but not yet. The spring was here on March 20th, but it's not yet fully spring, right? Uh, the kingdom of God was inaugurated with Jesus' death and resurrection, an event in time and space, and it will be fully here when he returns again for the second time. He is king. He has defeated the powers of death and darkness and this world, and also his body, the church, is living out that reality while also living in this world that is still very much broken. This reality, this, fault, this Christian reality as the disciple of Jesus, is why when we read through the, Old, the New Testament, we'll see, you see this tension, this contradiction coming up all the time, this idea that it's springtime now, but it's not springtime yet. Especially when you read the letters of Paul, he says things like, we are already redeemed in Christ, but not yet redeemed. We are already sanctified in Christ, but not yet sanctified. We are already saved in Christ, but not yet saved. We are already raised with Christ, but not yet raised. What's going on here? This is um, 
The paradox that Jesus expresses in John 16 when he's talking to his closest disciples there before he uh, is betrayed and taken to trial. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the paradox. If he's overcome the world, why do we have trouble still? If his cross was the victory, why don't we experience the full fruits of the victory? This is a very reasonable question to ask. G.K. Chesterton, a thinker in the 20th century, he reassures us, whenever we feel there is something odd in Christian theology, we shall generally find that there is something odd in the truth. This paradox here, this not yet, or this, this now but not yet, this paradox is in many ways, it's a big theological idea. So some of you are like, okay, great. Ladea, here we go, this big idea. I don't have the brain space or power for this. But you know what? This big theological idea has such intense practical implications for how we live our lives and how we move around in this world as disciples of Jesus that we can't ignore it, okay? We, we have to wrestle with it somehow. This is the third message in our discipleship series. And so I wanna quickly review what has been said the last two weeks and show you how this message is fitting in. Justin, two weeks ago, reminded us that discipleship isn't optional, uh, challenged us to ask ourselves where in our lives we might be reluctant to submit to Jesus or to follow him, where we say, oh, but first, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but let me just X, Y, and Z. True disciples reprioritize their entire lives around Jesus, who is their savior and also their teacher, their master teacher. And in losing their own life, will find a new identity. That's what Justin spoke about. Pastor Phil, last week, touched on some of the same ideas in different ways. The fact that salvation and obedience are inseparable, two sides of the same coin. Uh, he warned both preachers and churchgoers who prefer to preach and hear the blessing upon blessing messages all the time. He said, beware of living and creating a selfish Christianity that's focused on me and what I can get and my comforts. God cares deeply about our needs, but instead of always asking God for things, Pastor Phil challenged us to ask what we can do for him instead of always asking what he can do for us. What can we do for him, our Christ, who suffered immeasurably on behalf of us, on behalf of our world? God's great triumphant rescue plan culminated in the violent crucifixion of his son. You see there, right there, there's another paradox at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Victory and glory come through complete surrender. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to invite this tension into our lives to willingly wrestle with the strange and difficult reality of living in between Jesus' first and second coming. What exactly have we signed up for? It's worth reminding ourselves, and so that's what we're doing this morning. We're going to look especially at Paul, who, as I mentioned, he was just saturated. He was swimming in this now-not-yet mindset, and he argued that all disciples of Jesus should do the same which says to me, okay, that we need to spend some time here. 
We'll also look at a couple of examples of people who are and have lived out this now, not yet paradox faithfully. Are you with me this morning? Okay. Turn with me to Romans 8. Wonderful Romans, complicated Romans. Paul, who um, his writing is amazing. It's also extremely difficult. In Greek, the language he was writing in, I mean, he would have sentences go on for lines and lines and lines and lines. I mean, the way you see Romans in your Bible, your translation, you'll, you'll have a paragraph with sentences in it. In the original, those paragraphs are entire sentences, extremely difficult to read and to understand. I'm not going to lead us through an intense Bible study line by line by line because we don't have time for that here. Instead, my purposes this morning are for us to understand what it looks like to live in God's kingdom now while waiting for it to be fully realized in the future. And I think we find a central passage that communicates that in Romans 8. So look toward the middle of that chapter, Romans 8, verse 15. We see that Paul claims that the Holy Spirit has brought about your adoption to sonship. Past tense. It has happened. We have been adopted as children of the living God. In verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Remember Pastor Terry's message for us on Easter morning? He spoke about claiming our inheritance in Christ. Well, here's a clue, Romans 8, 17, about what we need to do to claim that inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, so Paul's telling us that it's a walk straight through the suffering. It's the only way. Discipleship to Jesus isn't easy, right? Paul keeps going in verse 18. This is where our hope comes in. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And this is coming from a man who definitely knew what it meant to suffer. The possibility of his death was real and imminent most days of his life. And he just stared that right in the faith, right in the face with faith and said, you know, that's okay to live as Christ, to die is gain. In verse 19, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So already, already here, on this side of the resurrection, Paul's reminding us the state of creation, the world, nature, our bodies, we are still, in many ways, still in bondage to decay, right? We get old, we die, flowers wither, um, and it's waiting. This creation is waiting itself to be brought into freedom. The whole earth is waiting for its ultimate renewal. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. This word groaning here is quite interesting. 
The first time it's used in the Bible is way back in Exodus to describe the sound that the Israelites made um, during their slavery in Egypt. They groaned as slaves in Egypt, and God hears their groaning. Their groaning goes up to heaven, and God hears them. Okay, so this is the same word Paul's picking up on. The whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. Wait a second. There's, there's one of those paradoxes again. In verse 15, he said, we have been brought into adoption. And in this verse, verse 23, he says, we wait eagerly for our adoption, comma, the redemption of our bodies. Now, not yet. For in this hope we were saved. We were saved, past tense again. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So you can see the verb tense switching here. He's really, really trying to get at the root of this now, not yet reality here. This is what we have signed up for as a disciple of Jesus. So in verse 23, let's look at a couple things here. We have the first fruits. That's the now, or as theologian Gordon Fee puts it, with the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the promised Holy Spirit, God has already set the future in motion. So we've got a taste of the future now. The future, what is the future that we're waiting for? It's a united heaven and earth in complete union with God, right? It's, it's like the picture of Eden when heaven and earth, those two spaces, God's space and our space, they were fully united through humans' own choices. The spaces were forced apart and separated. And yet God's rescue plan has always been to invade our space. He wants to be right in the middle of our space with us. And so that's what the future is, uh, the t- a taste of which we have now. It's like, um, you know the expression when someone is very ill, perhaps they're elderly, uh, and you're, you're seeing them, you're meeting them, and you think, wow, they are such a shadow of their former selves. Well, another theologian says, well, as disciples, we can turn that phrase around and say, we are shadows of our future selves here. What awaits us, this future, is more real, more full, more truly us, stripped of the masks, the brokenness, and the sin patterns that we're in the process of walking out of now. To be a person living out of the first fruit, as Paul says, means that our lives now are not determined by the world, the world, the flesh, all of those old sin patterns, but by the singular reality that God's people belong to the future that has already come present, okay? The future invaded our time. Another way to think about it in biblical terms is in terms of this age, this time, and the age to come. Um, in Old Testament times, Paul's ta- um, Paul, when he was a Jew, he would have been thinking of this age and we're waiting for the day of the Lord when he is going to turn um, 
turn around all the human kingdoms. He's going to trample on the powers that be and usher in a new age. So they were thinking of this very linearly, right? And what these theologians are telling us, what Paul is telling us, is that it's no longer linear. It's like we have this age and we're still here, but the crucifixion and the resurrection fused these two times together. So now we're living in this overlap. That's what this now, not yet reality is. And so people with the first fruits, they live as if the age to come is already here. They're not determined by their circumstances, right? They are marked by the death and resurrection, identified as God's people through the promise of the Holy Spirit, and are able to live in the future. Our, our values and our perspectives are given to us by God's future, no matter what our circumstances are now. This sounds difficult. It is impossible for us. But this is what we can do through Christ who strengthens us. That is, we wear the shorts, right? We wear the shorts on March 20th because we're awake to the fact that the earth has reached its springtime, right? We live like spring is fully here. Another way to put this is we walk around like it's heaven now. So this series on discipleship, it's called Walk. But I want, to give, I want to give us an image. I want our minds and our imaginations to be so captured by this thought that we walk around. The, what is our walk? It's, it's a walk behind Jesus, and we walk around like it's heaven now, because that's what Jesus was. Jesus was the meeting place of heaven and earth when he walked on this earth. And that's what the church, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, is as well. It's a meeting place between heaven and earth. We walk around like it's heaven now. To give you a, a visualization here, check out this quick illustration. It's a, a very short clip from a Bible project video. We're going to send the link out so that you in Connect groups can watch this video and have some further discussions. But you'll see, as I've already mentioned, these two spaces, God's space uh, and our space, that have been separated. Our space is full of sin and death and violence and ugliness. And God's story is to unite them again, like I've said. So check this out. The culmination of the plan was Jesus. He came right in the middle of our ugly, ugly space to take our sin into himself on the cross, creating an overlap of our space and God's space. Why would he do that? Just so he could hand out tickets to heaven that we get to when we die? No, it's so that we would continue to be in the world with sin and yet live as if God's space already pervades everything. In other words, the church is an outpost of heaven. His disciples create pockets of heaven living now. That's pretty cool, right? Does this mean, as the church, who are living in light of the cross and resurrection, that we stay in our little um, heaven bubble, ignoring the reality of a still broken world? Of course not. Of course not. We're not called to be comfortable after all, and that isn't the pattern of Jesus' life. Paul, as we just read in, ch in chapter 8 in Romans, said, we have the first fruits and yet we are also groaning. The world is groaning and suffering and we join them. We're also groaning as if in birth pains. That's the perfect metaphor, right? Um, Jesus himself uses this metaphor in John 16. I, some of you watching, of course, have 
experienced birth pains firsthand. Um, I also have, and I can say that the groaning that a birthing woman makes when she's in labor is it's the most animalistic, involuntary sound I've ever personally made and I've ever heard, right? Um, in fact, when I was in labor with my first child, we, I, hadn't, I didn't really understand what was happening uh, until it was almost too late, till my first was almost born at home. So Adam and I are trying to rush to the car. I have a major contraction right in the middle of the road. I'm groaning. I'm, I'm doing this word that Paul uses. I'm groaning right in the middle of the road. It's rush hour time in Sweden, and I'm standing on a bicycle path. And so a, a polite, confused Swedish man dings his little bicycle bell at me, bling, 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 to say, excuse me, while I'm like, you know, in birth in birth pains. <laughs> um, little did I know that Ella would be born just 30 minutes after that, <clears throat> right? So <laughs> this is the word, and this is the metaphor that Paul is using here, this type of groaning, the where we, as the church, join our groaning with the creation groans, uh, and we're suffering right there with it. And it's involuntary. It's just the state of the world leads us to groan. So it's a picture of the church not staying in their little bubble and saying, oh, we, you know, we've got heaven over here. No, no, no. The church doesn't run from suffering, but straight to it. Not because it's extra virtuous to suffer, right? We don't inflict suffering on ourselves for the sake of suffering. That's an idol but for the sake of another. And just like a, a mom in labor, she's doing it for the sake of a new life. She can't help but do it for the sake of a new life. Like Jesus, our path is to the cross. It's the necessary first step to get to the resurrection. I love the next two verses in Romans chapter 8. Paul knows that his readers here are going to ask, well, where is God in this now? Okay, God, he sent Jesus to die and resurrect, and so we live in this kingdom now. But what about, where is he while we're groaning? Verse 26, he says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself, that is God himself, intercedes for us through wordless groans. It's amazing that it's the same word there, the same word. God is right there in the middle of the suffering, also groaning with us. Verse 27, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. N.T. Wright, one of the foremost theologians on this now-not-yet reality, he says that this kind of prayer is the ultimate image-bearing act of a kingdom people in a suffering world. I'm going to say that again. This kind of prayer, groaning prayer, where we know that the Spirit is groaning right alongside us, this kind of prayer is the ultimate image-bearing act of a kingdom people in a suffering world. As disciples, we've got to be so saturated with this now-not-yet mindset, the same way that Paul was. 
if we're captivated by Jesus, right, if we've really experienced the first fruits of life with Christ, then discipleship is far from unfolding a checklist of rules or, you know, blowing off the dust of an old ancient rule book and looking like, okay, what do I need to do to follow this religion? No, 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 no. If we've got a relationship with Jesus, if he's revealed himself to us, then we're simply compelled. We're compelled to change as a result of this deep knowledge that now we're practicing the ways that we will live in our future. In a way, all this, this is, what it, this is practice for what it's going to be like to live in the new heavens and the new earth when they are reunited. Have you ever thought about your life that way, your walk with Jesus that way? This is practice for what it's going to be like. <clears throat> I think of a powerful example of such a life lived in the now, not yet, in a man named David Bennett. He's an Australian. He describes himself as a gay, celibate Christian. Now, I don't know what triggers you and what doesn't trigger you, but don't get caught up with his labels, okay? Just listen to this. He, he, he has written an astounding book called A War of Loves. It's his story as an angry, Christian-hating, gay activist seeking romance who found Jesus when he wasn't even looking. And when I say found Jesus, I mean he had a real-as-day, unshakable, kingdom-is-now experience of the love of God several times. And those experiences, they drew him in to a relationship with Jesus. And he was compelled as a result of that, as a gay man, to say no to the experience of intimate, romantic, marital love in this life. And it was a, that was a process, right? I think it took him three years uh, to get to that point. And I mean, that is a huge cost. Why would he do that? Why would he give that up? This is certainly what the world without Jesus is asking. Why would someone deny himself a relationship in this life for Jesus? It's amazing. As though groaning with this reality, David moves in this world as though heaven is now, like intimacy with Jesus and the church is all he needs. He once had a BBC reporter interview him, and she was kind of suggesting that his views on celibacy are potentially dangerous and, you know, oh, you seem like you're denying yourself, you're squashing down some desires, and that's not going to be good for you. And he didn't skip a beat. He just said, I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding. God is real. I'm saying I've fallen in love with Christ, the living God incarnate, and he's fulfilling me. He said to this interviewer, I'd say you're reading me in a way that's actually about your own perception. Elsewhere, he writes, when you have tasted the holy goodness of God, the asinine gruel of the counterfeit just underwhelms and makes you ache for the safe harbor of true love and peace in Christ, the deep ecstasy of the wedding feast of the bride and the lamb. David Bennett's life and story are challenging for many reasons, but also just so encouraging. I definitely recommend his book 
a war of loves to, to uh, all of you guys listening and watching. I saw actually that C3 College has recently put up a short course. I was pleased to see that they invited him to do a short course for churches on how to relate to the LGBTQ community, which is such an important question in our times. And he talks about it with just such grace and such experience. <clears throat> but his story is also, it's just so encouraging. His story points me too to Christ. And I long for those manifest experiences of the now kingdom while I'm waiting. It's because he's had those and continues to have them as he walks with Jesus that he, he can fully live in the now and not yet. And it cost him something. That's the thing about being a disciple. It's not just believing something. It's not just adding Jesus into your life. As Justin said, and Pastor Phil in other ways, it's reprioritizing your whole life around him. That's what it is to live in the now, not yet kingdom. If David's story illustrates the now, not yet living in that he chose to remove something from his life as a result of what he had gained from his life in Christ, then my next short story illustrates now not yet living in someone who had something taken from her. So on January 1st, 1968, that's 53 years ago, my great aunt Elaine, who was then 18 years old, was paralyzed from the waist down which was the result of a terrible snow tubing accident in the mountains of New Mexico. She had been there on a trip with her church youth group, and the leader of that church youth group was my grandpa, her brother. Elaine had recently been married. Her husband had just gone uh, and left for Vietnam, but he later would leave her because he couldn't deal with the after effects of her accident. The day after she lost the ability to use her legs, she was supposed to have started work and she had purchased some beautiful new shoes to wear, but the company that hired her didn't keep her on. She's had 53 years now in a wheelchair with all the ailments and bodily issues that come with that. She also lost her hearing as a result of a surgery. She has truly, truly lived this life with a deep, intimate knowledge of bodily frailty, of sickness and betrayal. This is a recipe for bitterness and contempt for life. It's been a while since I've been able to personally visit her, but I remember as a girl just feeling like going to her house and visiting was magical. <laughs> uh, she loved to collect things and there was always something to look at. And then she herself, she was, she was just so sweet. She has such a sweet and strong spirit. Those who are closest to her now still testify that there is no one more undeserving of the painful life that she has lived. And it's, of course, the fact that she has surrendered her painful life to Jesus, that her spirit is as sweet and as strong as it is. And that spirit, unified with Christ, that testifies to heaven now. And her body, which she has referred to before as half a cadaver, testifies to a life waiting, the kingdom not yet. She has said herself that, you know, when she, when she goes on, when God takes her, 
that we should all throw our head back and laugh for joy, slap our knees, and just be so thrilled that God has taken her home. She is an amazing testimony to now not yet living. Fellow disciple watching and listening this morning, I don't know why you might be groaning. I don't know what kind of difficult road you're walking. Perhaps it's someone close to you who is suffering right now. As the church, we are called, we are compelled to pray that God would enter our suffering and redeem it. I don't know why that's his main method to redemption, but that is his main method. Not to run away from suffering, not to push it down, not to explain it away. To walk right through it, to invite him into it. That's the only way to glory, to our inheritance, is to walk through the suffering to the other side. Church, we together are to be future people. We walk around like it's heaven now. We wear the shorts, despite the weather. We have access to his peace in the midst of suffering. John 16.33, Jesus says to his closest disciples, I have told you these things. In other words, I have let you in on the secrets, divine secrets. I've, I've given you me. I've offered you intimate knowing of me and the Father and promised you the Spirit. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's an offer from Jesus. You may have peace if we accept his offer. You will have trouble in this world. We are compelled to live in this tension. It is in this tension that discipleship happens, okay? The path to following Jesus is to walk through suffering and still proclaim hope. Hope is not a wish. It's the glimpse of our future. It's the God-man who walked out of the grave on Easter morning. As we embark on new missions in this city through C3 Lund and City Hearts, we have got to do it with this mindset. We have got to imagine ourselves and live out the reality that we're walking around like it's heaven. We're heaven meeting the suffering of this world. We've got to have that attitude that we're an outpost of the kingdom of God, where God lives in union with his people. Let's pray, church, that it would be so. Lord, we need a fresh experience of heaven, of the love of our Father, a revelation of you to compel us to be kingdom people right now, right where we are, in our living rooms, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our cities. Lord, we pray your kingdom come now. No wonder you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come right here in the midst of our human space as it is already in heaven. God, would you renew our minds with this worldview of the now-not-yet kingdom? Would you bring our thoughts, our feelings, our actions in line with your story? Would you help us to understand that creation and even we are shadows of our future selves? 
Would you ignite us through your spirit so that even though for a little while, while we groan, while we ache, while we hurt, despite all that, we can give it to you for you to redeem and live like the future is now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you this week.